Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 30th, 2015. This is episode 1509 of the Survival Podcast. And it is, in fact, Friday, Friday, Friday. But it's not a typical Friday show, guys. It's it's 1.49 p.m. And after catching up on everything going on this week, I am now just now turning on the microphone on a Friday. And Friday shows, you guys hear usually a one-hour, 45- to two-hour show, which takes me around four hours or more to produce, not to mention the prep time that goes into it. So I have scrubbed the Friday show and pushed it to Monday. The Monday show will run on Tuesday of next week. And today we're going to do a show on building and establishing productive living fence systems. We did a show in the past on fedges or food hedges. This is really being taking the same concept a little bit different of a route. And for many of you guys with properties of any size whatsoever that want to be able to cross-fence your property, I think today's show is going to be really helpful to you, and it can it can save you money, and it also can produce something long-term that's far more useful to you than a metal fence that eventually rusts to the ground. Anyway, before I get into today's topic and, uh, and go through it with you, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Uh, first up today, if you're growing stuff you want to eat, you want to make sure when you cook it, you do really good things with it. And you can learn more about that from Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith will teach you how to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a, a life skill. And if you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, then guess what? You've never lived on MREs for six months. I have, and it's one of the reasons I've become a pretty damn good cook. Check out Chef Keith today for an awesome blog, a great store with all kinds of really cool organic and locally sourced products, great stuff there, along with a great YouTube channel and an awesome podcast. Check them out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, herbs of a different kind. When I'm achy and feeling tired and what have you, I turn to herbs before modern medicine. Um... I'm a guy that just doesn't take a lot of pharmaceuticals. I probably take uh, a handful of Advils or Tylenols a year if the herbs just aren't getting it done, and that's about it. Uh, I have found that things like teas and herbal rubs and herbal supplements do more for me in a gentler, safer way than uh, over-the-counter medications and prescription meds. There are times when modern medicine is the place to head to, like if you've been hit by a car and have a yield sign in your spleen. If that happens to me, please take me to the ER. But for everyday stuff, I prefer to turn to herbs first. If you want to try to do the same thing for yourself, check out Western Botanicals. Real people that really care about you, pick up the phone, give them a call, and they will help you out if you need help. And if you are a member of my support brigade, you get their premium membership for free. That's a $50 a year product. They'll give it to you for free. You get 25% off everything they sell after that. That means that their support of the Members Brigade alone pays for your first year of membership. Anyway, on that note, do consider joining the Membership Support Brigade. You will get discounts from great companies like Western Botanicals, like Harvest Eating, and, and by many other sponsors of the show, and a bunch of other companies that I've worked deals with and arrangements with. About 60 companies now do provide discounts to you on stuff you're probably buying every year anyway. Guns to gardens, practical to tactical, and everything in between, you'll find it in the Support Brigade. I uh, tried to make that a product that will pay for itself. Check it out, and you'll see exactly how it does just that. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com. 
Click on Members and learn more there. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all do qualify for a discount. And uh, you can uh, get that discount by emailing me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put Service Discount TSPC. Service Discount Tango Papa Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, TSPC in the subject line, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with discount information. Do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, if you're emailing me about anything, that's the new formula. It's been working very well. TSPC in the subject line, and then anything else you want. I run a filter for that and make sure that none of the emails that uh, get dumped in the spam box are lost if they have the TSPC uh, code line in there for it. Uh, with that is the episode 1509, so let us take a brief look in history at the year 1509. I have the first wearable technology, the Nuremberg Age, excuse, the Nuremberg Egg Watch, And I have Henry VIII takes the throne by storm. Since I know that we will hear much of the escapades of Henry VIII into the future, I choose to read for you today the first wearable technology, the Nuremberg Egg Watch. But you can read about Henry VIII and what he did when he initially took the throne at tspwiki.com from the history segment. We have every day from the awesome Alex Shrugged over there, our biggest contributor on the wiki. Anyway, the exact date is fuzzy. For the invention of the pocket watch, several people want to claim its invention, but it was probably Peter Henlein, a young locksmith taking refuge from the law in the Nuremberg Monastery a few years ago. He has a lot of time on his hands, so to speak, so he creates a better clock. Get it? Time on his hands, clock, <laughs> pun. Good job, Alex. Uh, I'm serious, too. Clocks of this time are delicate devices that require sturdy base, but Peter creates a more durable mechanism inside an inserts burner, that was used to protect oneself from the plague. If the incense is smoky enough, it keeps people away from you, so it probably helps. His new table clock probably kept uh, time for four, 14 to 16 hours. It was accurate within a half hour. A miracle. This year, he has produced a wearable clock with only an hour, hour hand. It is a spring mechanism that lasts 40 hours on a winding. A winding. It has a spherical casing called a Nuremberg egg, It is a work of art pinned to one's clothing and worn as a pendant. That's pretty cool for 1509. Here's what Alex has to say. Nowadays, pocket watches are disappearing. Personally, I find the wristwatch uncomfortable. I've stopped carrying a pocket watch. Apparently, the manufacturers can no longer produce one that actually tells time more accurately than Peter Heinlein's original watch. I'm not kidding. Timekeeping is hideous. Now I flip open my cell phone to see the time. The tech media has been crowing over the possibilities of wearable technology ever since the comic strip hero Dick Tracy used his two-way wrist radio in 1946. As of this writing, the Apple Watch is being released in 2015. It seems like a solution looking for a problem to solve. Time will tell. I kind of agree, guys. I don't get the watch thing anymore. Uh, the day I started carrying a cell phone, my propensity to wear a watch went down. I was never a pocket watch guy. Um, just, I don't know, I used to wear a watch. When I was a kid, I had, like you know, like a lot of kids in the 80s had a Casio watch, and eventually got the Casio watch with the calculator on it so you could use it in, in school uh, and things like that. And as I got older, I had a pretty nice Seiko 
uh, that I wore for a number of years when I was in sales and all, and you kind of had to dress the part, and it was more a fashion accessory because by then, of course, I'm using a cell phone and a Palm Pilot at the same time. We all know how that went for Palm Pilot people. And uh, eventually you get to a point where well, the phone does everything. So now the question is, can we take the phone, minimize it to the size where it fits comfortably on your wrist, and make it do all the things that it does in the package, at the same time that Apple's making the phone, the iPhone bigger, and other manufacturers are making the phone slightly bigger so that it serves as a better platform for video and all the other things people use our phone for. And I think the answer is, can you do that with a wristwatch? No. Like many of you, I daydreamed in school. I would look at my, my Casio uh, watch with the calculator on and I think, what if I could play all my Atari games? Remember Atari 26 in here? And I thought since it was my idea, I was going to be the one to make money off of it. That's how a lot of people think as adults, right? In fifth grade, you get a pass. You're allowed to think that way. And I, and I think I'm going to have this watch, and it's going to play all these Atari 2600 video games. And I think that that is thinking based on current technology without understanding future technology. And I think right now we're doing the opposite. We're trying to take future technology and make it retroactive to yesterday's technology. But if Apple says it will work, it might. But... um I think Apple's shown us that without Steve Jobs around, they're generally not the visionary company that they're reported to be. Hopefully they can uh, get back on track since Steve's not around anymore. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, productive living fences. Notice I did not say fedge or food hedge. So when I say productive, there's a lot of different ways we can take that. We'll get into that in a bit. What I want to start out with, though, is how I came to this solution for myself. I've always thought productive hedgerows make a lot more sense than fencing. There's no doubt about that. But yet, there's challenges with that for me. So I look at my property, and I have challenges both ways, fencing and, and, and growing stuff, right? I really got to have irrigation to make things work for me. So that means the idea, like in many climates, where you can just go out and plunk an Osage orange tree, you know, a, a burdock, uh, bodark, I'm sorry, into the ground every 12 inches, and it'll grow all by itself, and then you can lay it over and turn it into a hedgerow in three to four years. doesn't really work for me unless I do something to help it along, right? So I've been a little resistant. I've also been a little bit like, how actually do I do this? And I've also been up in the air about, well, what livestock am I going to run? If I put in a really nice piece of uh, uh, productive fencing and it's made up of something like goji berry, it works fine on ducks. Chickens can fly over it unless it gets really high, and it might be higher than I want it to be in certain areas. And if I had decided to bring goats or sheep on the property, well, they'll eat it. So making your decisions as to what you plant has a lot to do with, well, what is it supposed to do? So up until this point, I've been trying to figure out exactly what do I want it to do. And this is where I'm at now. I want ducks and maybe geese. And that is all. That's my livestock choice. I, I've, I've determined that on my small property of three acres, did it make sense for me to consolidate on the one main element that works best for me, for my goals, for my business, for my lifestyle, for the property management, for all of it put together, what is the best fit? And of everything we've tried, and I really believe even if we had tried other things and everything we considered, it is the duck. 
So I won't belabor the whole reason the chickens are going away. I'm just going to tell you they're going to go away, and they're going to start going away pretty pretty fast right now. They're now confined to a much smaller area, so that the ground that they've been overutilizing, because I don't have good fencing in, can, can begin its recovery. And I have a banding system now. If you get out, I put a, a little black tie wrap band on your foot, and I cut one wing. If you get out again, I cut the other wing and you get a red band on the other leg. If you get out again, you get a free ride in the scalding pot, unless somebody wants to take you off my hands. Uh, and if you're a rooster, you're heading that way really, really fast, because now they're confined. I've got too many roosters again, based on the way things are going. And I, I really think I've, I've added two roosters in the past two months um, that were not part of my flock that somebody threw over my fence because they figured, oh, he's got chickens, we'll just get rid of this rooster there. Uh, my wife came up with that theory, but I think it's quite valid because I have, well, I, I have one I know came from somewhere else. And I have two others that one's of a breed that doesn't make any sense uh, based on everything else I have. It just doesn't match. It's an, One of these birds is not like the other. One of these birds doesn't belong. You remember where that's from if you're an 80s kid. Um And then the other one is a breed that I have, but his size growth ratio is just not right. He's too old for the one group that I brought up this year, and he's too young for the other. So I think that I have a cumulative total of three roosters that are not supposed to be mine. The small blue Cochrane, uh, what do you call Bantam, it may become uh, dog food. He may not be worth processing for our own use unless somebody wants him. So I'm going to sell off my chickens, and I'm going to ducks. So that has me now looking at the areas that the ducks graze and the areas they've been naturally excluded from that the chickens have also naturally been excluded from and what the browse rate is. So that, that puts me to a point where the ducks aren't heavily over-browsing, but they're over-browsing. And then I look at that and say, okay, now what happens when I dump another 50 animals into this equation? Okay, now I'm going to get excessive over-browsing. Now I get into a land management problem. So now I've got to divide the property up. And I may go to half-acre paddocks-ish uh, eventually with some other ideas that I will discuss today. But what I need to do immediately is go to three one-acre-ish paddocks. Not, I'm not worried about being exact. And begin to move the birds on around a two- to three-week rotation. So paddock one for two to three weeks. Paddock two, paddock three, back to paddock one. If you go on a three-week rotation, they're off a piece of land for a total of six weeks. That's a lot of growth time. And then be selective with, it's not necessarily a time thing, it's, okay, there is a ton of grasshoppers over here uh, in, the, in the summer, for instance. I know where they're going to be the most grasshoppers. Well, if the grasshoppers are heavy, I'm going to put them there because they're not going to browse much then. They're going to they're gonna seek the protein fat if they can get it. So I can, I can make adjustments and change, but I've got to have the paddocks. So... When I look at that, I have a couple decisions I can make. One is, okay, the new plan that I have is not that much fencing. I could call a fencing company and have them put in five-foot horse fence with T-posts and a couple gates for probably 1500 bucks maximum, even with the rock. There's, com there's companies here that do fencing. They know how to deal with it. They were going to jackhammer if they have to. They jackhammer a hole. They put the T-post into the hole with sulfur, and the sulfur acid binds with the, 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 the calcium and alkalinity of the limestone. It basically welds the, the, the post into the hole. 
Um, so they know how to do that. It's, it's, it, they do charge extra because you have rock. You know, instead of just going out there with a post hole banger and just banging it in. But it's not impossible or anything. But when I look at the property and say, well, what are the best places to do this? It's take the west wall of the house and extend from the west wall of the house straight at the cross fence that right now separates one acre to the west and two acres to the east. And, and then come off the garage, which is, just say it's connected to the house, even though it's not. You, it's impassable if you close the gates of an alleyway between the garage and the house. Come off the, the east wall of the garage and run a line, not quite straight, but following the swale patterns in the food forest to the eastern fence. And you put those two fences in. One's probably uh, 110 feet. I haven't wheeled them yet. The other one off the top of my head is probably 150 feet. So it's not that much fence. It's just not that much fence. Even like I said, you know, we could probably do it for... $1,500, $2,000 with regular fencing. And it'll look like crap. Great big fence, cutting the thing in half, just... Ugh. So the other thing is it's overkill. So I need a fence of about two and a half to three foot tall to control ducks. I do not need a five foot fence. So my thought is to get three foot fencing. Oh, I have tons of cinder blocks still laying around here from the last owner. Some, some basic pieces of pole and lay out with cinder blocks and poles enough fence posts to hold up a three foot fence. Figure out where the gates are going and all that jazz. And then, you know, you pour one side of the cinder block with concrete so it holds the pole in and stands up. And then on the, on the leeward side of that, put in a, a, a shallow trench to put water in plumb water and irrigation in so I have watering along that line and it won't be right against the fence it'll actually be a few feet back from where the fence the temporary fence is and plant it with a productive species and coach it up over two or three years to the point where it becomes duck proof and then the temporary fence goes away and the cinder block can be repurposed and in fact at that point I might decide well I want one here now I want to cut this acre into two, eight, two half acres well, I can just repurpose it to there, or I can do anything else I want with it. Or honestly, I could cut, the, I could, I could, I could give them away on Craigslist for free at that point. They've done their job, but I have the material that can be reused in some shape or fashion, and then I'll have productive, manageable hedgerows and additional lines that are irrigated. So that makes the most sense to me out of all of the choices that I've had, and that's why I've come to that decision. It'll look cool, it'll be productive, it'll cost less. And it has a lot of functions beyond just what I can directly take from it that I'll talk about as we go through it. I think I have everything skinned pretty well at this point from a plan standpoint. The the challenge is going to be to put in gates. Um, they don't have to be elaborate gates, but they have to look nice. They have to pass the does the woman think they look good test. Um, and then the other thing with the gates is to put in either at those gates or... Uh, additional gates, at least one on each side of the property, that the dogs can get through that the ducks can't. Or I don't have to open them and let the dogs through. I really love the fact that I can put my dogs in the back or the front of the house, and they're secure. And if somebody, if they put them out back and somebody's jacking around out front or something's going on out there, they can run around to the front and protect the place and conversely do so in the back. They are excluded from the west pasture. That's fine. That's fine. I've got them perimetered around the house. 
I like it that way. This will bisect the property with the house in the middle. So you have a front and a back yard, so to speak. So I need a way to do that. No such technologies exist. I could put in, you know, then you got to think about getting power there, but there are pet doors that the dog wears a collar. Um, I need a pretty damn big one for Max. Um, another alternative is to create a low spot that the dogs can easily jump over. That works well for now, but I got to think about it. I got a big 140 pound shepherd who's aging and, and maybe not able to do that in the future. Um, and then the other option is to put in basically swing gates that don't lock but are held by a spring closed yet are pretty easy to push your way through and just train them that the gates work that way. And that may be the best tech, uh, appropriate technology for the situation because it doesn't require power and the dogs are smart enough to figure it out. The ducks, frankly, are not very smart and they probably don't have the, the, the mass uh, necessary to push their way through such a door even if they did. Uh, I guess if you got a, a duck... Uh, brigade, they could collectively do it, but again, I don't think they're that bright. So if anybody has any ideas for gates like that, that would allow the passage of a dog, a great big dog, uh, but not a duck, let me know. I'd love to hear it. Because that's about the only thing I have to figure out here to make this work. I do want to talk about what makes this thing financially viable, whether you have my issues or not. What makes it financially intelligent to put a fence in with 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 plant life versus just put in a full-on fence. One is fast-growing. So in my situation, I have a unique advantage. I'm not trying to keep a pig in. I'm not trying to keep a horse in, a cow. I'm trying to keep a duck in. So I can put a little bitty fence in, a little bitty temporary fence, very cheaply, without a lot of work, very inexpensively, and not worry. It doesn't quite look the way that I want it to because I know it's going to go away. So I've got that, where if you're trying to keep pigs or something else in, you 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 got to think about how this is going to work long term and how long you're going to take to get there. So the speed at which you can grow. Now, the thing is, let's say you're doing pigs, and you want to put in a, a Bodark hedge, which will keep pigs in once it's grown. It's Osage Orange. Really thick, just tough as nails, right? And it'll last a lifetime. Now... What would make that viable for, for hogs or whatever is your temporary fencing could be rebar with two lines of hot wire around the areas you have your pigs in while your boat arc comes up. So it's cheap to temporary fence, and it gives you more time. But if you need the animals contained now, you really got to try to find a good temporary fencing solution. And the whole point is to get off of temp fencing. So you have to start thinking about how long does it take to get there based on your goals. So you've got to have fast-growing stuff. It also has to be appropriate technology. So if I'm leasing land and I'm managing pigs, for instance, on 80 acres in 81-acre paddocks and I'm shifting them every day and I'm putting them through there and then rotating them back and by the time I get to the end, I'm ready to go back through and after two cycles, let's say, I'm ready to take pigs to market and I'm leasing that land there cheap, this is not appropriate technology. Because it's not, it's not financially intelligent te technology. Movable, portable infrastructure that when I'm done leasing this land, if I lose the lease on it or just don't want to farm it anymore, that I could pick up and leave with makes a lot more sense than trying to grow hedgerows there. Um, an another example would be if I'm in a, a very desert-like climate where I can't get things to grow and I can't, it's, it's so much expense to irrigate that area that I would be better off just fencing it, then I'm better off just fencing it. 
if I'm trying to put in a cattle operation on 900 acres, this might be an okay long-term strategy, but I'm going to probably have to put in appropriate fencing right away to get that done. So is, is the concept appropriate? If you're trying to control poultry in a backyard of a half of an acre, uh, you may not want to put in permanent hedgerows and cut up a half acre. It's a pretty small piece of ground to begin with, and it may not be appropriate. So you have to also ask, is this appropriate for what I'm doing? It may be appropriate to use as your perimeter fence, but not your cross fence or your control fencing. It's not always going to be the same. The next thing is, can you get plants cheap? Okay, And that means either you can propagate them from cuttings, propagate them from seed, or they're something that's available stupid cheap. And, and I'll give you a couple places you can get stuff to, stupid cheap today. Um, so if you can't do that, it's not viable. So uh, one, one thing you could actually, and it's in my list of plants you could use, and it might be okay in a way we'll talk about using it, but one plant you could use is jujube. Jujube is also known as Chinese date. It tastes more like an apple than a date. They're a great tree. They do well in very harsh environments. They can handle alkaline soil. They're thorny as all get out. They're tough as nails. They're fast growing. And the fruit is amazing. And it's good for you and it's good for livestock. Yay! They cost 30 bucks a piece. Whoa! Wait a minute. Because we're not spacing these things at 10 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet. We're not even spacing them at 5 feet. We're going to space probably at a maximum of one foot. And I actually believe if you want a one foot spacing of living fence, you should space it six inches so you can cull your losers or accept your losses. And if you get one that's six inches off where you want its mainframe to come up, you could train it over and up, if that makes sense. You want to plan on being able to, if necessary, lose half of your plantings. You might want to plant two every six inches. And then really choose your best, most suitable plants as you go. You know, you don't want a fence that's all nice and well, and then it's like this dead spot, and then go on again. So I'm for really heavy, dense populations. So that means 100 feet minimum, I'm putting in 200 plants. All right? If they're a dollar a plant, that's $200. That's financially $200 for a 100 foot of living fence, totally viable. If they're 10 bucks, and I'm going to put 200 plants, and you wouldn't do this. Right? I know what you're saying. Well, if I wanted those expensive plants, I'd go further spacings, put something cheap. And yes, you're thinking the right way then. Or I just accept it. I'm going to have to take longer to train it. And yes, you're thinking the right way. But if I had to do that, so 200 plants at 10 bucks is $2,000 to put in a 100-foot of fence. There's nowhere in the world you can't put in a 100-foot of badass fence with somebody else doing all the work for you for less than that. So it becomes in, it becomes non-viable as soon as you go there. So cuttings, seed, and cheap seedlings are the way to do this. So if we look at something like, let's say I want to do an apple fence. Well, I can buy an Akatova apple seed from Sheffield's, which is a great source. And I can, let me look it up real quick to be sure I give you the right number. I can buy a pound which I don't know that I would ever have cause to do, even with a very big project. But I can buy a pound for $109. $13,710 seeds. And this is an apple that produces a viable apple from seed. It's extremely hardy, extremely fast-growing, and extremely tough. Uh, you know, so that works, right? Because if I, if I wanted to do a little more math for you here, and I will... 
It's about 850 seeds to an ounce. An ounce is about 20 bucks. Okay? So, uh, a ridiculous plantings. At ridiculous plantings, you're looking at 400 feet of, of apple fence for $20. Now, you can't do 400 feet of fence of anything that's not a living being for that kind of money. So you can see kind of going to extremes in, in both directions how you have to look at the financial analysis of this to determine whether or not it works. And it all revolves around cheap plants. Because let's look at another way you could do it. Let's say you just want to do an apple, an apple row. And you wanted those apples to primarily be for your animals to eat and for wildlife to eat and for cider. So since it's for cider, you don't really care if they're a really great eating apple. Well, how much are apples out of apples from the store? Well, technically they're free. And I'm sure if you ask all your friends, just save all your apple seeds for me from all the apples you eat for the next few weeks, you could come up with a few hundred to a few thousand apple seeds for nothing. And that's how apples were planted all over this country, by the way. So if you can do it with seed, it's cheap. If you can do it with cuttings, it's cheap. If you can do it with cheap seedlings, it's relatively cheap. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. So now the next thing we have to do is we have to understand productive. Now, as homesteaders, we think with our bellies often, and we say, I want food from my land. I do not want to plant a non-edible fake pear tree that bears not a pear and watch it grow up and split it in half and be useless any longer. I want food. So food production is kind of number one for many of us. But the problem is if we only think food, we leave a lot of things out that are very useful and very effective in this type of a, of a situation, and we don't have to get maximum food production. This is an edge system that's taking land that normally would have nothing growing on it, and making it productive. So we don't have to get too, in fact, we get to be careful we don't get too much in an extraction mode. So we have to think about other things we could produce. How about fuel? Fuel production. So if we were growing a hedge, and maybe we can stack functions and stack features, okay? So if we were growing a hedge row out of hazelnut, we get a hazelnut yield, which is an edible yield. But hazelnut production is not that great on small scale, right? We can get what we get. Squirrels take some, pigs eat some, whatever, but we get some. But we have to prune it. We have to maintain it as a hedge. Well, hazelnut wood is a great burning wood. I mean, it's premium quality. It could be made in a biochar, or it could just be made in a charcoal wood. So that's an example of a fuel production system. How about this? How about we space black locusts at a more conventional spacing? Okay. And it's a fast-growing tree that gets into a, a size that can be used as a fence post very quickly, just in a few years. And between the black locust trees, we put a shrub layer in of anything else you want. Goji berries. I don't care what it is. As the black locust trees come up, we can tack basically a an insulator for an electric fence to them and maybe do a couple of those and basically put an electric fence in. But we don't have to. We could put those same insulators into those trees, run wires that are cold wires, heavier gauge cold wire, and just use it to train our hedge and reinforce our fencing. So now we're growing our fence poles. Now, now what we have in, let's say, 20 black locust trees at 10-foot spacing on 200 feet of fence row is all the cooking wood an average family would need from coppicing and pruning a year. 
if you're using things like a rocket mass heater or something like that. That's not going to provide you with enough firewood to heat your house with a wood stove. It's a nice extra supplement, though. Now, if we had multiple fence lines, and we were, we, let's say we had five fence lines, and we coppiced one a year, or pollarded is the, the more accurate word, because coppice is down to the ground. Pollard is up about you know anywhere from your, your belly button to your head high. And we do that once a year every five years. We actually make a significant difference in our fuel, fuel utilization. And since the locust is a fern-like leaf that lets a lot of light through, we can still have a productive food hedge underneath it. So now we start thinking about fuel production. We can think about things, too, like this. So let's say we do apple. So we do apple. You get a lot of prunings from the apple. Ever. You're going to maintain the hedge at a certain height. That means you let branches grow to a certain point and you prune them back. All of that apple wood, yes, is fuel. It's not the greatest fuel in the world, but it's fuel. But it's an incredible smoking wood. So now the byproduct of pruning becomes something we use to smoke our ham. Right? you got to start thinking that way. About fodder production. And not just for the animals around us, right? So I mentioned jujube. So jujube is expensive. Yes, it produces from seed terribly. But it sends up lots of suckers, and those suckers produce tons of little jujubes. I believe chicken would eat, chickens would eat it. I don't know that ducks would be that fanatical about it, but chickens would eat the hell out of it. So letting them have that fruit fall could be one way to do it. And it sends up lots of suckers, so it would be easy to train into a, a tree. Now, we could plant a whole bunch of jujube into a hedge, and we could prune out certain sections and graft productive varieties onto it. That would be cheap. I think it would be hard to manage, though. I'm not suggesting you do that one, but it's possible. Okay, um, We could do Siberian pea shrub. Not a great product for us to eat, but yet a good fodder crop. The black locust we can go back to. When that goes to flower, it's only a few weeks a year, but bees just swarm it. It's an incredibly good bee tree. Leatherwood's another tree we could grow from seed that's a great bee tree. We could do honey locust if we had a lot of cattle that we were fencing in, and the honey locust pods, the cattle adore them. Right? So you also think, what can I produce as a fodder crop? I don't have this on my list today, but what about mimosa? Mimosa grown in the way I said, so I don't want thorns. Okay, instead of putting locust trees every 10 or 15 feet as a main fence line with hedge underneath, put mimosa. Both mimosa and locust fix nitrogen. That improves soil. They both grow fast. That's great. And the mimosa is a great bee tree. Beautiful tree. Lots of shade for your animals. So you've got this hedgerow, and you know they're going to work it, and they work along it, and as they come along certain spots, they want to take a break from the heat in the summer, there's that big, beautiful mimosa or locust sitting over it. So now we've got fodder production and we've got shelter. Soil building. Nitrogen fixing, right? Autumn olive, locust. There's so many trees that fix nitrogen that could be in your, your fence lines creating a nitrogen cycle for your whole property if you manage the rest of the property, uh, property right. Or if we have something like locust or mimosa or whatever, when we prune that tree to keep it to a size we want in that system we've built, We have all the wood that can be used for what we've already talked about, but all the green matter, we throw that in a chipper shredder and we put that onto our, our gardens, our beds, our banks. There's also nitrogen fixation. There's a lot of nitrogen there that we didn't have to get from somewhere else. The tree made it for itself, and now we're cycling it back into the system. Um, also, we can think about medicines and teas. Elderberry, 
It's great medicine. Um, you know, sea berry is a great medicine. For tea, how about tea? You can grow tea in Zone 7, and you can get tea seed, and you can plant a whole hedgerow of camellia tea, which is the tea you buy in a store from seed. In fact, you could plant, since it's cheap, over 100 feet, you could plant one of those damn things every four inches and let it die. Whatever dies, let it die. And trade, because tea is a shrub. It's not a little bitty plant. So now you're doing high level, quick, rapid, natural selection for adaptation to your property. You know, you might stagger them a little bit to fit them in at four inches, ideally. But you could have a tea hedge. How much locally produced tea do you think you might be able to sell? You might be able to sell some of this stuff, too. Is there a profit in it? I'm not suggesting everybody go put a tea hedge in. I'm just saying it's a, pro- a plant that would work. Um, a next, next thing um, is, you know, again, soil building I already covered. I think I got ahead of myself. Wind blocking. So the thing about a horse fence or a chain link fence or a barbed wire fence or whatever, the wind goes, shh, I don't see you, I don't care. If we start looking at where we're putting in our edible hedges, they have a definite wind-blocking effect. And the, the, the effect is directly proportional to its density, how thick you grow it, and how high it is, and how wide it is. It creates like a wing effect over it. Now, that might be really valuable because you might put somewhere specifically to block the wind. And it might be really valuable because once you've put it in place, you have blocked the wind and you've created a, a, a microclimate. You've also funneled wind out and around different directions, so you can play with that. And then, you know, productive is also back to cost-effective. So even if I just put in Osage orange, and I just went out and got a bunch of Osage orange fruits for free because they're laying around parks and fields everywhere, no one cares, stuck those in a bucket, let them fall apart, and planted the seeds, and I had to put in... A thousand feet of fencing. It would cost me ten thousand dollars to have somebody do. And even if it takes a long time, if I'm in a climate where I don't have to irrigate, and I can just go out there with a seed planter and put one in every six inches, and at the end of the first year lay all the whips down, and once they're laid down, they start sending shoots up and weave them together. And four years later, I've got a big badass fence that cost me zero dollars and not that much labor really because the climate's the technology is appropriate to the climate and situation, then it's productive to me because I didn't spend that money. And especially on a property with a long time horizon for development, that could be going on in a place that you're not really using right now or you're using portable fencing for now. So the cost-effective nature has to actually be part of the productivity. The other thing you have to look at is, well, On your property, you're trying to build a a complete system. You're not just trying to build a a garden or uh, these standalone things. They all need to be interconnected. So what about wildlife habitat? Birds. Um, In this climate, I guarantee you, with the amount of lizard activity I have here, that these things are going to be lizard magnets for the fence lizards that we have. They're going to love this because it's like a fence. But it's alive, and I can hide inside it. Bugs go in there, and I can go in there and eat them. You know, so there's a there's a whole list of things that we should think about when we think about productivity. I have tried to stick to things that have some direct use for us, either food, medicine, tea, fuel, for the list I'm about to go through with you. But 
understand fodder's valuable too, right? And understand what fodder means to different creatures. So one of the things on my list is mulberry. We'll talk about it when I get to the mulberry. So the first item I have on my list is apple. Apple, I think, is one that bears consideration from everybody because we can source seed of known value like an Akatova, uh, or we can get seed for free from produce. And we can produce something that's either livestock usable or cider usable, or at least good if we have apples on our property that are of known varieties. Think about this. You have 400 foot of apple fence. All these different varieties of apples from just random seeds. Growing like crazy. Blossoms all over them. And then you have like your, your orchard or your food forest or what have you, your productive trees that you're really relying on. You think your pollination levels just went up? You think bees and other pollinators are going to be a little more attracted to do some work for you on your apples than anybody else? Just that alone, right? The next thing is because it's so cheap. Again, um, doing the math, I can put in, if I planted them at one foot spacings, for 20 bucks I could do 800 feet. At half foot spacings, which I would do, so because not one foot's plenty, plenty close enough, but allowing for a 50% loss. For 20 bucks, I could put in 425 foot of fence if I buy apple seeds. I, I dare you to beat that with anything other than something else you can scavenge again, like Osage orange or, or what have you. Scrub oaks could be used. I mean, it's it's up anything you can get seed for, you can do this with. But apple would be great. Mulberry. There are some varieties of mulberry that apparently are difficult to do from cutting, but like the dwarf mulberry, uh, the more more Alba is say that I've been playing with, that's just like bam from cuttings. So now I've got a plant that grows four to six feet, and a lot of people tell me in the right soils it's growing 10, 12 feet if you don't keep it pruned. It, it's bushy as all get out. It can be trained in any shape or form, and I can propagate it from cuttings. Think I can make a fence out of that? You bet I can. I can make a beautiful fence out of that. You know what a goat sees? Lunch. Lunch. If I'm going to do a mulberry fence and I'm going to have goats, I'm going to have to have permanent hot wire to keep the goats browsed to it at a minimum and then shape it kind of up over them and what have you because they're going to browse the hell out of it. It's like, it's like hay on a tree to them. In fact, mulberry leaf is very palatable to a lot of livestock. A lot of livestock like the, the browse mulberry leaf. So you say, well, it doesn't work good if I have browsers and stuff in my, in, my, in my situation. Well, maybe it does. If you're doing primarily poultry in an area, and you could now take your prunings, and your prunings basically become tree hay, which is a term from England that they use for a lot of times farmers would go out and gather prunings for their livestock at certain times of the year, well, then it works. And then the berries are productive for you. They make a good wine. They would make a good mead. They would make a good addition to a cider. They, they would make a good pie. They can be dried. Some varieties, like the white mulberry, are actually a very good medicinal and make a good tea. Um, so it's got all of that going on. And you can buy mulberry seed. So you can plant a mulberry hedge from mulberry seed. And chickens and ducks will just tear them up. They won't tear up the leaves so much, but they will eat the berries. So now you've got this, this free food. Now we could do that with a mulberry hedge, or we could plant mulberry trees at 10, 20 feet and build a hedge in between them so they become fence posts within our system. It's up to us how we want to do that. And then it works with goats, right? But goats will browse almost anything. 
Uh, Nick Ferguson, our resident plant and goat expert, can tell me, if he listens today, what the hell a goat won't eat. Because I don't know what a goat won't eat. But uh, I don't know if maybe a goat won't eat burdock. It might. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you have it established, they won't eat it to the point where they'll damage it. They'll just browse the outside edges and grow back. But um, anyway, you guys can figure that out for yourself. I'm not sure on that one. The next plant I have is goji berry. And I think goji berry would make an incredible hedge plant. Because once I start getting green shoots on gojis, I cut, 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 stick into a wet pot, it roots. Once I get that misting system running this spring, I can make a... I, I am probably going to buy from a backyard grower a hundred gojis this year at like three, like 300 bucks worth just so I can produce 10,000 of the damn things. Because once you have them, I probably won't buy a hundred from her. I'll probably buy another 20 or 40 uh, of them just so I get enough stock to make more and more and more because I only have so many. Uh, I gave away a bunch last year and what have you, but I've got several really nicely established ones here now um, that I can make as many of those things as I want. So with that, I mean, you can just root your cuttings and stick them in the ground. And, and I've had great survival rates with them. Hey, with Goji, the rooted cuttings that I, I put in, in one year, put a lot of growth on, a lot of multi-stem growth, which makes them ideal to weave into kind of a hedge system. And then the fact that you can propagate them for nothing, basically, makes them financially viable. Then you've got a plant that basically the leaves are usable as a tea. And, and, and probably a, if you wanted to sell a tea, a higher dollar tea, both green and can be fermented to a black tea, um, uh, than regular tea, though maybe you have to do some education in your market if you want to sell it, and a very high dollar medicinal. Gojis are extremely, I can't see you, if you had a 200 foot hedgerow of gojis, I can't see you wanting to take the time to pick them all. Uh, but birds would pluck them off. So then you're feeding the animal a high quality medicinal at the same time you're producing one for yourself, at the same time you're producing a tea crop. And they will grow 12 feet tall if you let them. So that can be as big or as short as you want. Me, I want to keep these things where you can certainly see over them. I'm thinking two and a half, three foot tall. I'd actually prefer something that um, if it was thin enough, you could step over it as a grown man. It probably would because it could be too thick for it. But that's more what I'm thinking. So it doesn't block views. But you might want it tall. So it'll grow really tall for you, really tough. And they are tough as nails. Next up, Rosa Ragusa. Rosa Ragusas are somewhat expensive, but they produce really, really easily from cuttings and, and, and from suckers. Now, you put in a Rosa Ragusa fence, and nothing in a few years is going through it. It will cut you to shreds. But it's beautiful. It has these gorgeous flowers on it, and some varieties have huge rose hips. Those are a medicinal, one of the highest sources of vitamin C in the world. Uh, my my grandmother actually used to make a, a soup from rose hips, a rose hip jelly. I mean, it's it's just a great product as well. Uh, next up, jujube. We've talked about that one a bit, but it's thorny. It grows very straight, very fast, very hardy. Those of you like me that are stuck with alkaline soils, it doesn't give a damn. Alkalinity, okay, I'll grow. I don't care. Acidity, as long as it's not extreme, I'll grow there too. I actually likes it alkaline. But 6.0, doesn't care. It grows. Produces, uber productive. There's several varieties. The two main ones are Li and Lang. Lang is the one that really has given its name of a Chinese date. Lang ripens after Li. You leave the fruit sit on the tree. It goes to something stupid like 45% sugar when it dries out. It dries to a preserved 
thing that looks like a date on the tree. You take it off the tree, it's, it's preserved. You can store it like that. Um, and then you think that might be something to fatten an animal with, all that sugar, all that carbohydrate at the end of a, of a, of a cycle. You think maybe throwing a couple baskets of those into your, your chickens Your broiler chickens for the last week might put some beautiful yellow fat on them. I do. Remember, despite what the government tells you, it ain't, it ain't, it ain't, it ain't fat and oil that puts fat on an animal or a human. It's sugar. So I think chickens would probably go nuts on these things uh, and put a nice little shot of fat on them toward the end of a run, just as an example of what could be done with them. Like I said, the trees are expensive, 30 bucks a tree, but you take the plant propagation course, you learn grafting, you can buy all the seed you want, make all the root stock you want. By the way, the trees themselves send up root suckers every year. You can pull those root suckers off and use them as grafting material. You could buy seed, plant from seed and overgraft, multiple varieties. You can do whatever you want. But I see uh, Jujube making a better spaced out tree with a, with a hedge connecting it. Uh, over time myself than being a whole hedge of jujube. If you just wanted it for animal forage, though, you can get the seeds relatively cheap from Sheffields. Um, next, I would go into hazelnuts. I would love to do hazels. It's not going to happen here. The soil's too alkaline. It's too hot. It's too dry during parts of the year. There's not enough humidity. This is just not good hazelnut country. It really isn't. And I, for a fence that I need to be effective in working in a couple of years so I can take away the temporary fence that I promised the wife is temporary, I don't have time for experimentation. Uh, if I had another 10 acres of ground and some deep soils, I could go out there and plant a thousand hazelnut seedlings and see what survives and work from there. I don't have the space, the time, or the energy for that. But for some of you that are in places where hazels just grow, what a great plant. Fuel, poles, food. Fodder, dense, thick, fast-growing, yeah, you really can't ask for more. Now, going to the other side, those of you down around like southern Louisiana, Houston, Texas, South Florida, areas where you get edgy on citrus. Citrus will work, but it's it, you can still lose it. Loquat. Loquat will grow where oranges will die or not quite make it or not quite produce it. It'll produce a lot of times where oranges are marginal and tangerines and everything else are marginal. So you've got a citrus hedge, and there's places, tons of places are being used for that right now. So loquat would work. Plum, not something we'd normally think of. Um, but our native plums, our sand plums, etc., you can buy seed for that. So you can weave those into a very fence-like structure. There are smaller, bushier forms than the big plums that you think of like You know, like your, your Japanese and your European plums. I'm talking about these native plums. And then you've got another great livestock product. Chickens would love that. And it's productive. And again, so now you've got a, a pollinator. Something that would cross-pollinate uh, with your other plums, your higher-value plums. And there's nothing wrong with sand plums and bush plums and things like that. Uh, how about aronia, or chokeberry as it's called? So there's some... There's some name varieties of Aronia, which actually are not terrible for eating out of hand if they're fully ripe. Uh, they make a pretty good, highly nutritive uh, juice. They're really kind of better as you take a little of Aronia juice, you put it with something else for its antioxidant and medicinal properties. But animals, birds, etc. love them. And you can get those dirt cheap, or you can get seed for them dirt cheap, either way. Osage orange, I've talked a lot about. It's also known as Bodark. Um, it is an incredibly high-quality wood. It's a good fuel wood. It grows fast. And wherever you can find them, you can find those balls in the fall, and you get your seed for free. Or you can buy seed from places like Sheffield's if you want to do that. 
So Osage Orange, I think, has a lot going for it. I've heard it can cause problems with cattle overeating it. Uh, when I've talked about it on the air, I've had people say, we have them, cows do fine. And I've heard people say, we have them, we've had some problems with cows. Uh, but usually the one people have problems with cows, it seems like there's a huge, vast majority, like a place where there's just a ton of them, and the cows get in there and go nuts on them and get a little bit sick. So I think too much of anything is bad. So if you had them as your hedgerow and you knew when your fall was and you, 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 you excluded your cattle for a time, you'd mitigate that issue. But it was Thomas Jefferson that suggested that every farmer in America should be planting their fences out of Osage Orange. Um, it, it's really just an awesome tree for its purpose. Uh, next is black locust. I did include honey locust because I feel it's a lot harder to manage honey locust into a smaller tree form than it is with black locust. You can do it, but it's, it's more difficult. It's also got bigger thorns. It can be a bigger pain in the everything uh, for you. On a larger holding, it might make very much sense to use honey locust as a fence line tree. But I think if you're going to do that, then you're looking at big trees. Well, plant oaks that are a fodder oak or a forage oak or something. Or plant pecan or chestnut for that. I just think that makes more sense uh, than a honey locust, unless you're going to raise cattle. I mean, honey locust and cattle, they, they go good together. Um, but black locust is really easy to maintain as a pollard tree. So something that you... Let get pretty big, but then you cut it back to like head height or a foot higher than head height every year and take all that wood. It's extremely dense wood, extremely high-value fuel. If you grow it into a timber tree, it is a great timber crop as well. It is fast-growing. It is resilient. And no, it's not going to take over the world. It's not going to spread everywhere. If you're grazing, okay, then the animals graze off the, the shoots. And it only sends up a lot of suckers with disturbed soil. So unless it's constantly being disturbed, it's not really a big issue. So I like black locusts as being a little bit easier to control and contain. It's not for everybody if you're not going to put time into your property, or you're probably not really big and it's not like far fence rows or something. It's probably not for you. But the wood is almost indestructible. It's a nitrogen fixer. It's a bee forage crop. And you can get seed for free or cheap. And you can get seedlings for very cheap. I'm going to go over some seedlings that you can get uh, and use with you here in, in just a minute. The next one is autumn olive, another one that people are terrified of. Oh, no, it's going to be invasive. And here's my thing about certain invasive species. If they're already here and they're already doing whatever they do, I'm not worried about it. Okay, If it's this newfangled thing that's not really here and it's a problem in a few areas, I don't want to add to or exasperate that problem. But a plant like autumn olive that the highway commissions across this country planted from stem to stern across this nation, that's already all over the place, it, sitting on your property is not the, not where it's become a problem. And you have to, well, I won't go deep into it, but if you start going into why autumn olive is so prolific, it is a reparative plant, okay? It fixes damaged ecosystems, so we've taken a highly survivable, highly propagatable plant that's reparative, and it's growing like crazy in certain spots. Why? The property that it's growing on is damaged. Okay? And it doesn't invade the woods. You go deep. Like, we have it all over in West Virginia at the Permethos Farm. We do. You know where it is? On edges. It's not out in the middle of fields, and it's not deep in the woods. It's all along the roads. 
right? It doesn't, it, 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 it does what it does. And it's, and it, it's very good at what it does, which is repair soils and feed animals. So it's going to invade me with nitrogen and an edible fruit. Oh God, no, not that. So I actually really love autumn olive and I'll tell you a few reasons why. First cost effectiveness. It is easy to propagate from seeds. So you can get seedlings cheap. Very cheap. Again, I'll give you some numbers on some seedlings here and a few sources in a bit. So cheap seedlings, which I also can say about black locust. But it is pretty easy to propagate from seed. And you can get seed for free by harvesting it from the wild or by buying it for dirt cheap. So that's got a lot. It grows fast. It grows very fast. I planted one and a name variety, by the way, kind of a, a designer variety. One last year that I planted was about a foot and a half tall, and it's about five feet tall right now. And it's very multi-stemmed. So it's a rapid grower. So two to three years in, you've got a fair hedge if you've planted autumn all of that one foot spacing. Uh, it's got an edible component to it. It's not the, you know, you don't like, ooh, it's autumn olive season. I'm going to gorge on autumn olive for, for the next six months. It's not like that. But it is a pretty good, if you let it go to full ripeness, out of hand, edible product. Birds love it. That's one of the reasons it spreads and does its horrible thing of fixing nitrogen and repairing landscapes that have been damaged. And, and it, the environmental groups from the state say, it displaces native plants by producing too much nitrogen. Oh, so it fixes things, and it causes secession. And I mean, it's one of the greatest plants that's ever invaded us. I'll just leave it to you at that. Um, but if birds like it, then ducks like it, and chickens like it, and turkeys like it, etc. So it's a good feed crop for your animals. Um, it actually is pretty easy to control when it comes. You know, if you have grazers, they're going to graze it when it's at a shoot. And if you're if you're mowing, making hay, whatever, maintaining through cutting or brush hogging or grazing or whatever you're doing, uh, or just animal traffic, it's not going to spread, right? It's not going to spread into your open areas because it doesn't do that because you manage those. Right, so it, it's pretty tame, really, and because it's so multi-trunked, it makes a great hedge. If you just take a little time each year to, you know, encourage it to cross over each other, and I mean, you're going to get something impassable by a duck in two years, just from the growth I've seen here. And this is not the most hospitable environment. Let's just be honest about it. So, autumn olive tea, which I already talked about, but I'm saying tea, I mean camellia. Right, the tea that you buy in the store, Lipton. Right, you can grow that zone seven and above. The edges of zone seven heading towards six, where it gets kind of harsh, maybe not. But I've had, I have one tea, Russian tea plant, sitting out there this year. That it's, it's like the chickens pulled all the mulch away, and I just said, the hell with it. Let's see what happens. It's fine. We've had days below 20 degrees. It's not the happiest tea plant on planet Earth, I'm sure, but it's fine. And when it puts down its roots this spring and gets more resilient. I expect it to be quite useful. I'm not saying I'm going to put tea into my hedgerows, but especially those of you that are like zone 8, 9-ish, man, what a cool thing. And the smell of it is beautiful when the sun's on it. Great flowers, pollinators love it. You can have green tea, you can have white tea, and you can ferment your own black tea if you want to. Uh, next up today, currants and gooseberries. These are smaller. These would work well for controlling things like a duck. I don't know how much else they would control. Uh, but I've seen current bushes go about three foot tall and be very, very dense. So they're, they're good from that standpoint. They produce an edible, etc. I mean, a goat is just going to eat it probably and certainly get over it. Gooseberry's thorny, so it might be a little bit better than a current. And of course, then there's jostaberries, which are crosses. But I think that like the, the real, 
value to current is that if you live where it propagates well and grows well, cut it a piece off, stick it in the ground, cut a piece off, stick it in the ground, cut a piece off, stick it in the ground, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. So it would make a nice low hedge. Um, and you could either make it kind of, you know, natural looking and multi-textured, or it could be pruned to a pretty, you know, landscaped-like model. I wouldn't go with a square pruning, but more of a rounded, I mean, you could maintain it a little bit, a little bit suburban if you wanted to, I'm just saying. Um, and then last is willow. Willow is easy to propagate. It basically gives you, by making willow water, you have a root st stimulator that you can use to do other, other cuttings. Uh, it's been traditionally used for hedges for thousands of years. Uh, it's one of those plants that if you, if you lay over a branch or a main trunk, it sends up lots of shoots. Autumn olive does that as well. Um, on, on the autumn olive with that, we had places where the bulldozers did work on the farm for us, and they damaged the autumn olive. They wounded it. They pushed it over. You think it would die. And it sent up hundreds of perfectly straight, beautiful green shoots of new growth. So that makes a good hedge plant. And willow does a lot of the same thing. So does bodark. But willow could be woven into this gorgeous fence. And then as you take your prunings off it to maintain its height, you have one of the best plants in the world for producing artist charcoal. So that's, that's something to think about there. Or willows for willow basket weaving or, or all types of other things. But artist charcoal, there's a pretty good artisan market out there for charcoal made from willow. Uh, and, of course, it could be used as a biochar or a cooking charcoal as well. But it's really kind of a smaller, thin, and it makes that great for sketching artist charcoal. Just wanted to throw that one in for you. Uh, a couple more fruits I wanted to talk about that I left out, and I'm sure there's a hundred more you can think of that would work in here. Uh, so I didn't leave things out for omission, but we're at an hour, right? So I can only put so many plants in a show like this. But cane fruits like black and raspberry, it's very classic for this. My only concern with using them uh, for that purpose is their productive model. So you have Floricane and Promacane blackberries. Floricane, cane comes up, grows the first year. Okay, The second year, it has more growth come on it, and it produces fruit. So Floricane, second year, produces fruit. In the third year, it'll be dead. It needs to be pruned out. Okay? And then you've had your new growth, which is now second year cane, and so on and so forth. So every year, to keep it healthy and happy and productive, you have to be going in and pruning out your dead wood, your third year wood. Now, this would lead you to say, well, why not primacane? Primacane works this way. Growth comes up the first year, and it produces fruit late in the year. And you leave that alone, and you, you tip it back. And the second year produces a big crop early in the year. And your next bit of new growth comes up and produces a late crop. So you get two crops a year. And you get first and second year wood producing. Well, that's great. Well, yeah, but in the third year, the cane still dies. So there's no three-year-old three wood in black and raspberry, even with a primacane variety or an erect variety. It doesn't mean it can't work. It means it requires that extra thought process. Because as you're pruning out all that dead wood, you may get to a point where you don't really have a significant barrier for a while, except, you know, thorns are a little bit of a deterrent and what have you. Now, how could that maybe be utilized? How could you take that functionality and make it very beneficial? Well, what if you planted um, your locust or what have you at your 10-foot spacings and ran wire in between them and used wire to train your canes? 
as a trellis for your black or raspberries. Um, you, and you have enough wire between your trees to make up for whatever you have to prune out every year while you're waiting through your winter growth to still control your animals. That would work. That would work. And you probably could do it and make it work anyway without doing that, but I'm just saying that we'd have to think a little bit more. Another plant that makes a great barrier is bamboo, but it wants to spread, right? There's clumpers, which still make the best barriers, and then there's, there's running bamboos that spread. If you're mowing frequently, you just mow shoots down. They just keep getting mowed down and mowed down and mowed down. It's not the bigger problem. But bamboo wants to spread everywhere. It doesn't want to spread in this long line. If you can make it work, it's great because you have this incredible barrier because it will fill in over time. And it will become pretty much impassable for most animals anyway. Um, and you've got this great source of, of material now. But I don't personally see it as a great fence plant. I see it more of a, a property edge barrier plant or an edge plant or a, something you grow along a dam breast. And it might have some exclusionary uh, usage, but I don't really see it as a standalone productive fence. I think it can grow along fences fairly well. Um, but as you're, you, you know, it's something that you, the reason you're growing it is for the material and for holding soil because it holds soil like nothing else. It doesn't deep go deep rooted, but it grows like a grass. It puts a net down. Uh, it's also expensive. It's a little tricky to propagate, and it's expensive. So I don't think it's the best. But I brought it up because I know a lot of people would think so. Next is elderberry. Elderberry is a great idea. I'm a little concerned at how dense you could keep it on the bottom uh, so that animals can't sneak through underneath, you know, even a duck or, or what have you. So I think it can work, but I, I'm, not, I'm not totally sold on the application of it. I think the more you are in prime elderberry country, deep soils, uh, lots of rainfall, where you got rampant growth, I think you can make a, an elderberry hedge that hold back uh, you know a football team uh, I think in other places you might get a little bit too sparse so I think that's one you have to make your own judgment on and mesquites and acacias uh, do a lot of things that we talked about with black locust but they're a lot more likely to be a little bit of a management problem for you but they can be good fodders and things like that you just have to know what you're getting into so so that really kind of wraps up the list I have for you today to be thinking about and anything else you can put in there and there's things like okay why not pair? Well, pear grows very upright, so you can make fence poles out of it, but it doesn't really make a good hedge. right? It wants to be a big tree. It wants to be a tall, spindly tree. It doesn't like the multi-branch. So you could use it like a locust, right? but it's not, since it, it's going to bush out then, and it doesn't have the fern-like leaves, trying to get the, your, your sub-canopy hedge up to its trunk might be a little bit more difficult, you know, on the dappled shade effect. So you can, like, go through the things I didn't name and, and figure these are reasons. I mean, you know, but there are other things, and I'll just throw off the top of my head here. Hanson's bush cherry might work very well. Uh, it's been growing pretty well for me here. I just don't know. I want to make the investment till I know if it's productive or not. Uh, Nanking bush cherry would be another type of bush cherry that might work very well. Uh, that Both of those would fit in. Uh, to the same type of model that a, that a sand plum or bush plum uh, would fit into. So those would be quite useful as well. So don't think that I left something out just because I think it sucks. It's just I can only fit so much in. And these are the things that when I was thinking through this, 
were ideal for me, and then some of them were ideal for other parts of the country. So this was like an ideal list. I do want to give you guys some idea of what I mean by affordable for certain things. So if you were going to plant something like Black Locust, if you wanted to buy one to three of them from a, a, a site that I'll recommend called Coldstream Farm that I bought from, uh, one to three would be four fourteen a piece. Uh, four to 24 of them, $2 and 41 cents a piece. They get pretty cheap there, but you'd have to be a fool to buy 24 of them. Cause at 25 to 99, they go to 92 cents a piece. So that means you absolutely can buy 25 for less than 24. They get cheaper as you go up in number. You buy a hundred of them, 67 cents. This is from a commercial nursery. This isn't from like a state, a state, you know, program with, with requirements or anything like that as to what you do with them. 67 cents. So I could buy a hundred black locust trees for $67. Right? So that's another one of those things. Like if you buy 50 of them for 92 cents, you're almost at the same price. You're not exactly, but you're almost at the same price. So black locust, even if we go to, we want a one to two foot tree instead of a little bitty seedling, uh, one to two foot tree, a hundred or 87 cents. Two to three foot seedlings, a hundred uh, would be a dollar eighteen a piece. So you could buy a hundred two to three foot black locusts. That's pretty established for one hundred eighteen dollars from Coldstream, and that's just one place you can get them. Uh, as far as autumn olive goes, I don't see it on their site right now, but I bought a, a hundred autumn olives from uh, Coldstream Farm uh, this fall, and they may be just removed because they're out of stock at this point. But I bought a hundred. They were fifty three cents a piece for one to two foot. Uh, seedlings. So that gives you an idea of how affordable they can be. If you wanted them for this spring, doesn't do you a lot of good, I know. Uh, another website that sells these is Burnt Ridge Nursery, and you can buy a bundle of a hundred for three hundred dollars. So you're looking at three bucks a piece. That's a little more than I want to spend for a hedgerow, but it's not ridiculous uh, in, in in cost at all, and it is something that can be propagated from seed and cuttings. So it would be a good establishment amount. But it seems high to me, unless you just want to give those little a little company some business, or you're buying other things, so you're you're throwing the shipping in there. But right now, you could also get a hundred of them from Lawyer's Nursery, hundred autumn olives, twelve to eighteen inches. Um, they are a dollar eighteen each. Let me let me work this out for you guys. I'm not sure how they're pricing this here. Uh, they're eighty eighty six cents per hundred, uh, five hundred at fifty nine cents. So a very, very affordable uh, there. They have bundle pricing, and I just wasn't sure how they were doing it. So that would be a better price on Autumn Olive. Black Locust, they have at $0.96 cents a piece for seedlings per hundred. Again, a very affordable price. Lawyers has Aronia for um, 90, $0.80 cents for 3- to 6-inch seedlings per hundred, 94 for 6- to 12-inch seedlings per hundred, uh, $1.09 for uh, 12- to 18-inch seedlings. That's a pretty good-sized seedling for Neronia. Uh, they'll grow pretty fast, so uh, you know, $109 for 100 seedlings. Just to give you an idea, some of these plants are very affordable to plant. Say so you, you haven't gotten out and picked up your green balls yet to grow your Osage orange fence, you want to grow an Osage orange fence, uh, how about this? You can get uh, seedlings. Uh, three to six inch seedlings, Vosage orange, 80 cents a piece for a hundred. Uh, if you wanted to go all the way up to, uh, let's say, uh, 18 inch seedling, uh, you can get a hundred for $129.
So again, this, this stuff is affordable. It's actually very, very affordable. How about this? If you want to do elderberries, uh, Sambuca condensis, which is our American elderberry, a hundred of them, uh, seedlings for, uh, $1.25. And you see the prices just get better when you buy more. And that's what makes a lot of these plants I've selected. This is why I've selected them. They're kind of ideal for this hedgerow mentality uh, of them. They're not the most productive high-end varieties or high-end items. So Autumn Olive doesn't really have a high-end item. Uh, uh, you know, crab apple is a crab apple. But let's look at that. The Lawyers has a ton of variety of crab apples, but uh, averaging about 60 to 70 cents per hundred for seedlings uh, each. So 60 to 70 dollars per hundred. Uh, and crab apple, of course, you could graft other apples onto them. Somehow I realized I left Siberian pea shrub off of my list. I'll make sure I put it back in. But you get a hundred of those for fifty-two cents a piece for seedlings. That's a great fodder crop for your, you know, your birds, your chickens, and what have you. So that's another example of something very affordable. What if you wanted to make that impenetrable, beautiful Rosa Ragusa hedgerow? How about this? You get a hundred seedlings of Rosa Ragusa for fifty-nine cents. Some of you guys need to be thinking here, too, that want to do your own uh, business. Wow, these things are cheap. How do I compete with that? Uh, you, you don't have to. You can use this. What if you got 100 Rosa Ragusa seedlings, just to go out on a limb here, for $0.59 cents a piece, and you potted them into like a 4-inch pot and grew them out until mid-season into a nice little $5 plant and sold 100 of them for $5 a piece locally? That's another way to see this, right? So be thinking about that, too. Like you, It might be that some of these larger purchases, some go in the ground, some get grown out, and some get sold out. I'm just saying. Something else to think about there. What about those sea berries? You know, sea berries, are, the name varieties are pretty expensive, $20, $30 a plant. What about 100 seedlings for a dollar a piece? Uh, that's what's available from lawyers and air at six to twelve inch seedlings. Even if you wanted to go to uh, um, a twelve to eighteen inch seedling, a little bit bigger of a seedling, uh, you're still dollar nineteen, dollar nineteen, two to three feet, dollar sixty five, hundred sixty five bucks. You can get some pretty established. At when you're looking at two to three feet, you're probably producing some berries in your second year. And sea berry, as thorny as it is, you know, uh, you're gonna do now. You buy seedling sea berries. What you end up with is some are male and some are female. But in a, a hedgerow like this, you really don't care. The density you're planting kind of makes up for that. So that's another example of something that can be done very affordably without having to propagate your own stuff. How about a flame willow, Salix flame? Uh, this compact, dense habitat. The bark is orange, golden yellow color leaves. Beautiful, beautiful tree. Great landscape background, windbreak. Uh, it is just an incredible tree, and it's something that, again, could be potted up and sold into your climate. It's hardy to zone three. hundred of them, $1.37 apiece. It, 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 again, it's, it's one of these things with larger purchases, uh, the price gets better. Uh, we can look at something like uh, American, uh, American Filbert, American Hazelnut. Uh, you can get a 100 of them for $1.09 apiece. 12 to 8 inch ceilings, 100 for $1.90 a piece. This is all that's available from Lawyer's Nursery. I haven't even gone to any of the other uh, suppliers. There's tons of suppliers you can find. Um, but it, it's, you know, something that you, you just have to start looking at. What do you want? And when you think things are expensive, 
a lot of times it, it depends on what you're buying. And if you want to buy high-end cultivars, that's one thing. But large blocks of land can be planted out with these seedlings and plants from seed, and you get a lot of natural genetic selection there, and you find your own varieties in time. We've got Russian mulberry, 87 cents to 100, hardy to zone 4. Good root stock for grafting other mulberries onto. If you had a hedgerow, you could be pulling root suckers whenever you want it for your own root stock. Uh, good fa fodder for, for animals, great windbreak, and if you don't graft onto it, they produce berries. Um, not the highest quality mulberry out there by any means, but... And you might be able to find better quality stuff for your own goals by looking around. I'm just giving you some ideas. One more and we'll wrap up. Just I, I really want to give you an idea of how inexpensive this can be. So plum was something I said, and planting plum very dense and interweaving them, kind of that uh, Belgian-style fence that you do with apples, but doing it with plums. Uh, a shrub plum, Prunus Americana, which is the Native American plum, these things produce beautiful flowers. And then one-inch plums. And they're not really something you want to do a lot of eating with. You can. They're sweet. They're just little. Um, but they definitely would make a good jam, a fruit leather, probably a wine or a beer adjunct, something like that. Great wildlife fodder. You want a hundred of those. It's got to be expensive, right? About 62 cents a piece. $62 a hundred for seedlings. Even if you want to go up to a bigger seedling, 12 to 18 inch seedlings, um, a whopping $84 a hundred. You want to go up to uh, three foot seedlings, dollar fifteen a hundred. I mean, these are just uh, amazing opportunities for, especially those of you guys with lots of land, with reasonable rainfall that don't have to irrigate the way I do. Uh, for a few hundred dollars, you could have just multi species uh, fence row uh, hedge hedge rows put out there with all of this diversity and actually create barriers, windbreaks, soil improvement, wildlife habitat. And it gets exciting if you start thinking about stacking it. So instead of just doing all of one species, doing a mixed row like we, you know, what would be a great example of this, just going with two, space locust for nitrogen fixation, bee fodder, uh, et cetera, shade tree, open motlet shade that gives shade but doesn't shade everything out. Uh, and then connected with autumn olive. That would be an example of something that could be really, really cool. You could do that with apple. Instead of going with the really cheap apple, what if you went with a good cultivar apples planted at 10-foot or 12-foot intervals with an understory hedgerow? That would that would work as well. You could do that with goji. So apple and goji would would kind of guild well together. You could do one row with ten different things in it. I would recommend if you're going for the hedge effect, instead of just the trees with the hedge in between, that I would group your hedgings. So if I was going to do, let's say I want to say I want to do aronia, uh, I want to do plum, and I want to do plum in a hedge, and I want to do apple in a hedge. I want to do an apple fence. I want to do mulberry, I want to do goji, I'd probably break it into zones. So you'd have, if you had 10, there'd be 10 of this, and then 10 of that, or 20 of this, and 20 of that, or 30 feet of this, and 30 feet of that. Think more in feet than numbers. And the reason I would do that, one, for harvest, anything that is productive you want to harvest, and two, because they're going to have similar growth habitats, so you're going to manage the, them to, the, to, to bring them to the same height eventually, or similar height eventually, but they're, going to be, they're not going to like crowd each other out then. If you had something pretty slow-growing right in with something fast-growing, then you, it, it, the, the, the faster grower is going to dominate it out, where if you put them in clumps, all you have to do is manage the transitional edge. 
So that's, you know, kind of there. On my final thoughts, I just think this is like one of the most underutilized things in America today. Leave permaculture out of it. Just think of all the farms out there with all this fence row that could be replaced with something productive. And even if you didn't want to harvest it, the fact that it's creating windbreaks, it's bringing in predator habitat, it's bringing wildlife habitat, it's bringing fodder, it's bringing fuels, and it, and it lives, so therefore it, it's sustainable where fences rot and rust and need to be fixed all the time. You ask anybody with a large land holding that relies on fencing, how much time a year do you spend fixing fencing? And unless they spend some really high-end money on putting the initial fencing in, the answer is a lot. So I think this is a great thing that could be used in anything from small rows and fencings in the suburbs to major installations out on larger-scale farms. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I know it's a little bit different for a Friday. came out a little bit late. Uh, I ask you to kind of bear with me as I go through some of the uh, high work weeks where I just don't have the time uh, to do things maybe by the normal schedule, but I will have a call show coming for you on Monday, so it's not a lost cause or anything like that. It's not like we're going to miss one this week. I'll just bring it back around for you the following week. We'll do our typical Monday show on Tuesday next week, and we'll have some cool interviews and some other great stuff for you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut